Hello, and welcome to episode 8 of All You Need to Know About European History. We have arrived at the Renaissance. 1453 was a good year for gunpowder. At one end of Europe, French artillery at the Battle of Castillon blew away the English presence in southwest France and victoriously concluded the Hundred Years' War. At the other, the new siege guns of the Ottoman Turks, the work of a Hungarian iron founder called Orban, breached the great walls of Constantinople. After more than 1,000 years, the Byzantine Empire was finally snuffed out. Auburn, incidentally, did not live to enjoy the prodigious fee he charged for his services. He was too close at hand when one of his cannons exploded. The 21-year-old Sultan Mehmet II, now the Conqueror, transferred his capital to the plundered city and declared himself the new Caesar, heir to Imperial Rome. With the bridge between Ottoman territories in Asia and Europe now secure, and with complete control of the straits into the Black Sea, Mehmet could set about expanding his empire into Greece and up through the Balkans. The fall of Constantinople, though imminent for decades, sent shockwaves throughout Western Christendom. Traditionally, 1453 has been taken as the beginning of the Italian and therefore European Renaissance, that extraordinary period of artistic and intellectual achievement during which Europe left the Middle Ages behind and entered the first stages of the modern era. Of course, not everything started in Italy. Flemish artists led the way in portraiture and the use of oil paint in the early 15th century, notably Jan van Eyck with such masterpieces as the Arnolfini marriage and the adoration of the mystic lamb in his Ghent altarpiece. But northern Italy, with its close commercial ties with the Low Countries, Arnolfini was an Italian banker, was the main incubator. And, as the label Renaissance implies, the whole phenomenon was fuelled by a rebirth of interest in the civilization of the classical world. So, the fall of Constantinople, with the consequent transfer to Italy of a millennium's worth of accumulated intellectual capital from the Eastern Empire, administered the decisive impulse. But, of course, other more prosaic factors were at work as well, both political and economic, and the impulse only accelerated a process that had already been decades in the making. Italian culture had not been lying inert, like Adam on the Sistine Chapel ceiling, waiting for the touch of an outstretched finger from the East. Indeed, as we have seen, even in the troubled 14th century, figures like Dante and Giotto and Petrarch were harbingers of what was to come, while, despite the ravages of the Black Death, trade and industry were stimulating economic activity. Florence, soon to become the epicentre of the Renaissance, was building wealth through the wool business, and was only one of a number of Italian cities establishing the first banks in the 14th century. Nor was there any lack of contact between Italy and Constantinople before 1453. Links of scholarship had grown steadily in the final decades. One seminal event was the arrival in Florence in 1396 of the Byzantine scholar Manuel Chrysoloras, invited over to lecture in Greek language and literature. 
Then in the 1420s, a Sicilian scholar arrived from Constantinople with a trove of some 200 Greek manuscripts, including the complete works of Plato. Much further intellectual exchange took place in the margins of the Ecclesiastical Council of Florence, which sputtered on for years as the increasingly desperate Byzantines tried to secure military and political help from Western Christendom by attempting, fruitlessly in the end, to negotiate acceptable terms for ending the Great Schism and submitting to papal supremacy. The rediscovery of the language and literature of classical Greece was key. The work of Aristotle and other ancients, such as Galen the doctor and Ptolemy the astronomer and geographer, had been widely studied across Europe throughout the Middle Ages, but only through Arabic translations and commentaries done into Latin. The Greek language itself had been effectively unknown in northern Italy for 700 years, since the end of the Byzantine presence in Ravenna. Plutarch, the great discoverer and editor of ancient Roman writings, had owned a Greek copy of the Iliad, but was unable to read it. Now, Chrysoloras arrived in Florence with copies of Homer and Plato's Republic, which he translated into Latin, and taught a whole new generation to read in the original. But what, you may ask, has the rediscovery of classical learning and civilization to do with Michelangelo and Leonardo? Part of the answer is suggested by that great European historian Norman Davis's description of Leonardo as a left-handed homosexual engineer with a sideline in painting. The great geniuses of the Renaissance were so much more than just painters or sculptors. Michelangelo may have painted the Sistine Chapel and carved the Pieta and his David, but he was also superintending architect of the new St. Peter's in Rome, crowning it with its magnificent dome. Leonardo designed new fortifications for Milan, and, as his notebooks record, obsessed over the mechanics of the human body and the flow of water. Both feasted on the architectural treatise of the Roman Vitruvius, which laid out an architecture of symmetry and proportion excitingly different from the prevailing Gothic. Vitruvius, by the by, was another scalp of the Florentine book-hunter Bracciolini, the man who unearthed Lucretius. Renaissance men had not yet learned to confine themselves to narrow specialisms, but explored wherever their skills and creativity and intellectual curiosity took them. And inspiration was to be drawn not just from book-learning, but from the physical relics of antiquity, now the subject of revived interest. Brunelleschi aimed to surpass the Pantheon in Rome with his hugely ambitious double-skinned dome for Florence Cathedral, and copied from Vitruvius the design of a hoist to assist the work whilst the warrior Pope Julius II assembled a collection of classical sculptures which included such masterpieces as the Apollo Belvedere and Laocoon. But perhaps even more important than such direct artistic influences was how rediscovery of the classical world helped transform the political, cultural and intellectual life of the 15th century Italian city-states. Influenced by Cicero's writings on the ideals of the late Roman Republic, prominent families in the leading cities of northern Italy, Medici's in Florence, Visconti's, then Schwarzer's in Milan, Estes in Ferrara, Gonzaga's in Mantua, 
began to aspire not just to wealth and power, but to civic leadership, to moulding their cities into models of good governance, requiring, of course, their own decisive influence over affairs, whether openly or covertly exercised, and centres of scholarship and artistic achievement, fuelled, of course, by their own discriminating patronage. On further reflection, perhaps the golden age of the Emperor Augustus was an even better model than the last years of the Roman Republic. Medici rule in Florence was not untypical in moving from control by influence of the oligarchic signoria in the 15th century, Cosimo and Lorenzo unofficial first among equals, to straightforward autocracy in the 16th century. As the 15th century advanced, the surging interest in classical Greece complemented the ancient Roman model. Periclean Athens was discovered as a shining example of how a proud and ambitious city-state could achieve not just military and political success, but become, over just a couple of generations, the incubator of stunning advances across the range of human achievement sculpture, architecture, painting, scholarship and philosophy, drama and literature, science and technology. The parallels were, and are, compelling, even down to the endemic political instability both within the city-states of 5th century Greece and those of Renaissance Italy. And, from both the Roman and the Greek examples, 15th century Europe acquired perhaps the single most potent fuel of the Renaissance, a fascination with man. Peripheral England contributed next to nothing to the Renaissance before the outpouring of Shakespeare's genius in the years just before and after 1600. But Hamlet's words perhaps most perfectly capture the spirit of the age. What a piece of work is man! How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. Man's function, as understood through the centuries of the Middle Ages, was to get through the veil of tears which was his mortal existence, as best he could, and secure salvation in the hereafter. The classical world had known no such defeatism. Man, an ancient Greek philosopher, quoted by the newly accessible Plato, had declared, is the measure of all things. I am a man, observed the Roman playwright Terence, so everything human is relevant to me. The late 16th century French philosopher and essayist Montaigne had these words inscribed on the beams of his thinking and writing retreat. For the ancients, the gods were distant and capricious. Man was the most fascinating thing in the universe and largely responsible for his own destiny. As we noted in the last episode, the rediscovery and popularisation of Lucretius's belief that everything is the product of the random interaction of atomic particles, making preoccupation with religion futile, was hugely influential. Since their origins early in the millennium, universities had concentrated on theology, with a bit of law and Aristotelian logic and rhetoric thrown in. Now, a complementary curriculum took shape, the Studia Humanitatis of science and philosophy, based on the classical patrimony and embracing all aspects of man 
and his environment. It was not only Leonardo who found the human body fascinating. Andreas Vesalius, the Flemish professor of anatomy at Padua University, laid the foundations of modern anatomy with his multi-volume On the Structure of the Human Body, published in 1543. In the selfsame year, Nicolaus Copernicus of Krakow University published On the Revolution of the Celestial Spheres, challenging the dogma that the Earth was the centre of the universe. In art, the flat religious paintings of the Middle Ages acquire depth and context, landscapes and the representation of the built environment. Renaissance artists studied architecture, geometry and optics as they struggled to master perspective. Alongside this curiosity about man and his environment, interest snowballed in man as a social animal, the essence of philosophy. Socrates has asserted, Renaissance thinkers now knew, that the unexamined life is not worth living. So, what was a, a good life? How should people behave towards each other? What were the rights and obligations of the different elements of human society? Machiavelli's The Prince began circulating in 1513, Castiglione's The Courtier around the same time. Courtier has a negative connotation today, but Castiglione was writing about the ethics, behaviours and accomplishments to which a gentleman should aspire. And where else would a gentleman be found if not at a princely court? In his case, Urbino. And preeminent amongst all the humanist scholars of the period was the Dutchman Erasmus, who worked his way, much like the leading artists of the day, around both the principal Italian cities and further afield to Paris and London, where the kings Francis I and Henry VIII now hungered to sponsor and embrace the Renaissance in all its aspects. Nor were new ideas and learning any longer dependent on travel for their dissemination. The development of printing, crucially Gutenberg's invention of movable type in the 1440s, was the most profound advance in human communication until the internet. It would be nice to think the Renaissance as a key stage in some sort of ascent of man, European civilization's transition out of the fearful obscurantism of the Middle Ages to a more enlightened understanding of our universe and man's place in it. The extraordinary scientific and artistic achievements of the period, the policies of the great patrons like the Medicis, the spirit of tolerance and rationality that infuses the writings of humanist philosophers such as Erasmus, all these developments encourage the sense of a new dawn of human enlightenment. Well, up to a point, but a rather limited point. In the first place, religion might be in crisis but it was certainly not in retreat. Devotees of the newly discovered Lucretius might embrace a set of ideas about the world and its composition, which explicitly dismissed religion as deluded superstition. But Michelangelo and Leonardo remained devoted to their faith, and Erasmus remained a committed priest. As too, of course, did Luther. He may have railed against the Roman Church, but from the standpoint of a man who believed profoundly in his God and the imperative of salvation. As the counter-reformation against Protestantism developed, the Church adopted some deeply unscientific positions, as in its resistance to acknowledging the true nature of the solar system. 
But overall, it is striking how easily church and Renaissance accommodated each other, with the Pope's enthusiasm for the rediscovery of antiquity typified by Raphael's great school of Athens fresco in the papal apartments. And though architecture may have rejected the Gothic, the same can hardly be said of the human imagination. The bizarre and fearful imagery of Hieronymus Bosch is exactly contemporary with the Renaissance's most celebrated masterpieces. The German artist Albrecht Dürer may have taken draftsmanship to unprecedented heights and achieved unprecedented commercial success by his embrace of printing for the dissemination of his woodcuts, but engravings such as Night, Death and the Devil are hardly infused with the light of classical civilization. A little later on, Giuseppe Archimboldi, court painter to the Emperor Rudolf II in Prague, deployed his skills on portraits composed of vegetables and penises. Nor was the intellectual legacy of antiquity, whether transmitted through the Arab world or derived from the libraries of Constantinople, as homogenous as often supposed. Plato may have had a profound impact on Western European thought in the 15th century, but so too did Neoplatonism, a school of philosophical writing originating in Alexandria in the early centuries after Christ, with an altogether more spiritual-cum-mystical bent. The central idea of Neoplatonism was the one, some universal godhead underlying all the monotheistic religions and ordering the universe according to deep but coherent laws. From the same Hellenistic tradition came the Corpus Hermeticum, also translated into Latin in the 15th century, which purported to present the wisdom of Hermes Trismegistus, a fusion of Hermes and the Egyptian god Toth, and provide the key to the understanding of God, the universe, and everything. Astrology and alchemy were part of the mix. Throw in a new interest in the Jewish Kabbalah, and you have a potent ferment of intellectual and spiritual inquiry covering the spectrum from science to magic. One notable embodiment of this amalgam was the uh, combative Swiss-German doctor known as Paracelsus, who scandalised the medical profession by attacking their comfortable reliance on ancient texts and insisting on the need for observation and evidence-based practice. This may have earned him the reputation of the father of toxicology, but he's better known to history for his astrological prognostications. Another was John Dee, astrologer, mathematician and conjurer, and owner of one of the biggest private libraries in England. At different times he was a trusted advisor to Queen Elizabeth, particularly in relation to the quest for a northwest passage route to the Orient, a specialist in codes and ciphers, and therefore a person of interest to the new intelligence services which the wars of religion were breeding, and a summoner of angels. Inevitably, he migrated to Prague and the court of Rudolf II, a man of boundless intellectual curiosity and magpie-like fascination with the novel. It was Rudolf who was happy to be portrayed as a, a composite of vegetables. It would be easy to dismiss this stuff as mumbo-jumbo going on straightforward charlatanism, and much of it certainly was. Compare the studiously Delphic prophecies of Nostradamus 
who was lionised at the 16th century French court. But in the Renaissance's new dawn of fascination with man and his environment, and with the frontiers of human knowledge, whether geography or anatomy or astronomy, expanding exponentially, who was to say where the boundaries between science and deeper truths about the workings of creation lay? Given the infant state of physics and chemistry, was the concept of turning base metal into gold so obviously ridiculous? Even Robert Boyle, the 17th century father of chemistry, kept faith with the dream of transmutation of metals. And had not Ptolemy, the great Alexandrian geographer and astronomer, also written extensively on astrology. Copernicus invoked the corpus hermeticum in support of his heliocentric theories. And even the great Isaac Newton, when not formulating the laws of classical mechanics or developing calculus and the science of optics, indulged an interest in alchemy and the occult over a hundred years later. So magic and the occult were as much a part of the Renaissance ferment as reason and science. And we in the 21st century, as we consult our horoscopes and imbibe the lies of the anti-vaxxers, are in no position to feel superior. With so much of Western politics now based on a willful rejection of evidence and fact and an appeal to tribal instincts, it is hard to feel confidence in any theory of the ascent of man. It seems that the battle between reason and unreason is one which every generation of humankind must be ready to fight anew. But I'm getting off track, and it's high time to restore some chronological discipline and offer an account of the political and inevitably military developments against which the Renaissance unfolded, and by which it was, of course, shaped. And the first point to make is that an essential precondition of the Renaissance's flying start was the relative peace that descended on Europe for much of the latter half of the 15th century. We noted above the parallels between Renaissance Italy and 5th century Greece, including a fragmented political landscape of rival city-states. Perhaps in both cases, competing civic ambitions were a necessary stimulus for their cultural achievements. But competition is one thing, conflict another. And the real flowering of classical Greek civilization happened in those few short decades when Athens dominated the Greek world largely unopposed. Similarly, in 15th century Italy, it may be doubted whether the Renaissance could have blossomed as it did without a period of unusual political stability following on the fall of Constantinople. There is direct cause and effect at work here, for the fallout of that epochal event was not confined to the efflux of scholars and manuscripts. Even more immediately, it sent a shockwave across Europe. As we know today, it usually takes a major crisis to induce Europeans to put aside their rivalries and act together. And the sudden prospect of the Ottoman Sultan now free to come at Western Christendom across the Mediterranean and up the Danube had just that effect. The year after the fall of Constantinople, the five leading powers of Italy, Venice, Milan, Florence, Rome and Naples, concluded the Treaty of Lodi, a sort of non-aggression pact which held, more or less, for the next four decades. 
These years of unprecedented political stability in the Italian peninsula were those in which Botticelli, Michelangelo and Leonardo got to work in Florence. Young Raphael learned his trade at the knee of his father, court painter in Urbino. Architecture in Italy was revolutionised. Leading families competed to build their collections of antiquities and libraries of manuscripts. When, in a word, the Renaissance bloomed. Elsewhere in Europe, too, these were years in which endemic conflicts between princes and their emerging nation-states were relatively subdued. After ejecting the English from France, all but their toehold in Calais, in mid-century, the Valois monarchs were busy consolidating their grip on their filled-out kingdom, finally adding in Brittany. The English retreated back into dynastic struggles of the Wars of the Roses, ending when the last Plantagenet king was killed at the Battle of Bosworth in 1485 by the usurping Tudor Henry VII. In Central Europe, the Emperor Sigismund died in 1437, and three years later the Duke of Austria was elected King of the Romans as Frederick III, marking the end of the Luxembourg imperial dynasty and their replacement by the Habsburgs. Frederick's imperial coronation by the Pope in 1452 was the last occasion on which a Habsburg emperor bothered to make the journey to Rome. Frederick held the empire until his death in 1493. These years were not conflict-free. Sigismund's death brought the crowns of Bohemia and Hungary back into play. A complex farrago of dynastic and military manoeuvrings played out, periodically involving the Polish-Lithuanian Jagiellons, and with native claimants at times securing one or other throne. Matthias Corvinus, king of Hungary from 1458 to 1490, who successfully held the Ottomans at bay and embraced Renaissance influences at his splendid court, at one point occupied Vienna. In Bohemia, the Hussites strove to be ruled by one of their own rather than some Catholic monarch. But regular Ottoman incursions up the Danube Valley had a sobering effect on the various Christian rivals. The Emperor Frederick, indeed, played his hand with such restraint across his long reign that he earned himself the nickname Sleepyhead. And, in a striking expression of the mood of the time, George of Podibradi, king of Bohemia in the 1460s, even proposed that the non-aggression pact agreed by the Italian states in the Treaty of Lodi be reproduced on a European scale. Faced with the abominable Turk, Christian princes should commit to settling their disputes by exclusively peaceful means and should set up a common parliament and other shared institutions. Unfortunately, George was a Hussite, so the Pope was having none of this, and without papal endorsement, the idea was never going to fly. George's plan would have to wait some 500 years to be realised. Still, the inception of the Renaissance owed much to the good behaviour of Europe's princes and potentates induced by fear of the Turk, through, that is, to the 15th century's closing decade, when normal service was, alas, resumed. To hear about that... Please tune in to the next episode.